Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Follow us on Twitter at, at clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm good, Kirk. You haven't started a clergy lay Haber Bros TikTok yet? I assumed you had. <laughs> you, you being a teacher, you're, you're all up with the, what the young kids are doing. Um, that, that, is, uh, that is my um, uh, pro Chicom burner account that uh, runs the TikTok, so... No, I, I know that you, uh, you both participate in, in things like Snapchat, uh, but also are frustrated by how the kids use it, that, that the kids get their news from I, Snapchat. I have the deadest, least used Snapchat account ever. Okay. Like my Snapchat okay. score would be laugh out loud awful. But yes, I am amused slash aghast at the fact that Snapchat is the primary source of news for most of my students. Yeah. Yeah. So I, both of us are, are back. Uh, I left, uh, we're recording on Friday. Uh, I don't know when you will listen, uh, dear listener, but uh, we are recording on, on Friday. Uh, we did the long drive, which was not long compared to yours, on Monday to come home from our vacation. Um, and I just posted a video of Kirk jumping off Burnt Island um, <laughs> that he took on Tuesday. So the weather, the cabin wasn't great for us. But once we left, because uh, we were only there 24 hours, it was kind of cool and, and breezy. Uh, not, uh, didn't didn't uh, keep all, my kids from swimming. Uh, Jordan swam three different times despite it being like 62 degrees and, and breezy. Um, but the next day you guys went up the lake and, and did all the fun cliff jumping and, and yeah. sure kids, kids had a blast. Um, and then you, uh, arrived home, uh, last, last night in time for baseball. Yes. Yes, we did. Uh, uh we got home at uh, about three 30 and we had a baseball game at six. It rained before it rained after, but we had, uh, we had rain luck and, uh, and we, uh, very exciting, um, we blew a four lead, four to one lead in the, the, the bottom of the last inning to the bottom of their lineup. Our closer gave up three runs. It was, it was demoralizing. And then we, we had run out of pitchers. We hadn't planned for extra innings. He so pulled a Matt Caps, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. the closer pulled a Matt Caps. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we had, we had our second baseman come in to pitch and he gave up a run in the top of the seventh, which wasn't awesome it could have been worse i guess um and uh and then in the bottom of the seventh we uh we scored scored two um we won the game winning run in a weird play which was a pop fly to the second baseman our third uh, our third base coach had a crazy hair idea and sent him 
uh, sent the runner at third, sent him home, um, and uh, tagging up. And uh, the throw was sort of high, but in time, and the catcher just didn't apply the tag. And so we won extra innings at a play at the plate. Um, <laughs> so, so exciting. Uh, my son, Simon, uh, he, uh, he pitched two scoreless innings, which is the max that you can pitch at that, at that level. Um, 16 pitches. So if you know anything about baseball, that's almost the bare minimum yeah. of pitches. So pretty, pretty efficient. Um, and and uh, Bryden, my oldest son, who who doesn't play and is kind of uh, more of a dreamer and more academic and a reader and 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 not sporty at all. Uh, he he was walking in the woods behind the baseball field, and I know this has sort of become the theme of this year. I don't know if I shared on the show a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that he was walking our dog and he saw a coyote. He he says. And he held up with a straight face, maintaining eye contact under repeated interrogation. He says that he saw three coyote (laughs) last night. So they're they're taking over, Kirk. Watch out. I I mean, coyotes are are coming. On the one hand, our our county, Beaver County borders Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh. So we're sort of the exurbs, right? Uh, We're a bedroom community for Pittsburgh. Um, you know, we're within 45, 50 minutes of downtown Pittsburgh. And on the other hand, we're in the hills of, you know, the hills of Western Pennsylvania. We're on the other hand, you're, you've been overrun by coyotes. And uh, this is the sign that nature is healing itself, right? <laughs> in Corona tide. <laughs> Bear sightings, coyote sightings. Uh, nature is reclaiming the earth. So here we go. And I, and I have a front row seat, evidently. So. So uh, I have not used the uh, I have not heard the the word sporty the adjective sporty to describe someone in a long sporty time. Sporty spice. Yes, 90s. that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what what I thought of. <laughs> so if if um, Simon is sporty, um, sporty spice. Uh, Daphne is sassy spice. Uh, George, George is, would be posh. No, we're 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 making up whole new ones. We're not trying oh, to fit him in. Ones. Okay, all right, all right. I'm just because there's no sassy spice, right? Uh, no, right. no, no. There's no sassy spice. So, right. so I'm, I'm curious Bri- with Brian. So Brian is gamer is, spice. Uh, gamer spice. <laughs> Simon is sporty spice. Is George sporty spice too? And then uh, I, I don't know. Pa- Posh would honestly be maybe a fit for George. For George. <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't like he. Not Posh. That's yeah. You you caught you caught me on my heels. I don't have something pithy or witty for you. This is great right. content. Great right. content. Right. Yeah. By the way, I yeah. Well, I'll say I'll save it for the end. I, I actually have a correction in addition, um, but a more serious correction in addition. Are we gonna? Why week, don't you so. do it here? Are we gonna remember to do this? Oh my gosh! This is a segment. This would be totally applying the brakes because it's. Let's do it. Let's do it, and then jump into the gospel. I called us sacramentarians. Uh, last week. Mm. And that is not what I meant at all. Because sacramentarians was a word that the Lutherans in the 16th century used for the Calvinists to Mm. say that they didn't believe that Christ Mm. was present in the sacrament of the altar. And so they called them sacramentarians, which seems counterintuitive to us. And so it would easily come off our tongues as meaning that we believe that the sacraments are important and that Christ is present in the sacraments and delivers all the benefits of his crucifixion, his his death, and his resurrection. Um, So what I meant was we're sacramentalists. 
Yeah. Where Sacramento Aries is the is the antonym to that. <laughs> okay. So there there's a there's a, a correction. I listened to it and cringed because if we have any uh, any theologians, uh, we do have many theologians. But if we have theologians that are listening, they're like, wait a minute. Yeah. And, it was and sort of a bit of a slur. And I think the Reformed didn't like the term. <laughs> and I think that was part of the point <laughs> when the Lutherans would use it. So, Yeah. And precision in language is important. Yes. So. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. That was like the worst screeching halt to, no, a, to right. a fun segment. But <laughs> do, do you want to cover, uh, do you want to kind of do anything else in the update or do you want to move on to the gospel? Well, now that I destroyed our fun banter about the various Spice Girls that my children represent, I'd say let's move on to the gospel. Good. That way, I don't, uh, I don't have to figure out what uh, what my children's Spice Girl names are. So <laughs> that can be part two for the next show. Let's move on to the gospel. Yes. Today's gospel, uh, it's interesting. We've been in Matthew 13 for a few weeks uh, covering various parts, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, uh, the parable of the sower. Uh, and, and because these are kind of mixed, the explanations are kind of separated. Uh, today's uh, gospel lesson comes from Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33, and then 44 through 50. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all the, that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gospel of the Lord. So uh, today's gospel reading uh, is part of... We talk all the time about context and how important context is in understanding something. And, and we understand that the entire gospel of Matthew uh, is discussion about the kingdom. Um, the king, kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Um, Jesus spoke a great deal about the kingdom uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, and one of his conclusions uh, at one point was, seek first the kingdom 
And then all these things, all these kind of earthly things will be added, but seek first the kingdom. Like don't seek to enrich yourself. Don't all those things that, that, that uh, kind of the, the culture out there tells you to seek. Don't seek those things. Seek this kingdom that is being revealed. And so th- there is um, uh, a biblical word that's often misused um, for revealing. Um, and, and, and that word is apocalypse. So the po- apocalypse is, is an unveiling, a revealing, where we use it to kind of talk about last things, last days, um, mostly because um, the, uh, the revealing of, of John's apocalypse in the book of Revelation, this revealing, uh, this prophetic revealing uh, is associated with the with with uh, last things with the eschaton, um, and and so that's why we associate the the apocalypse um, with last things. But this is a revealing. Um, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, and um, this is kind of wrapping up um, this part of teaching on the kingdom. He's taught in many ways, um, and and again, part of the context is understanding his audience. Um, not only his audience, but but that that uh, the Gospel of Matthew had an, had a human writer that we believe that scriptures are God breathed, but a human author who um, kind of put his personality and his perspective and kind of his current context when when he sat down to to write this gospel um, or, or, or I guess to to pass this on um, even before uh, potentially it was written down um, this this orderly account of of Jesus uh, from Matthew. Um, kind of has his perspective and his perspective is is to people who are are living at a time when when, when they are persecuted so the original context um was jesus was speaking to jews um and and showing them that he is the fulfillment of ever of judaism all the things uh he's revealing to them that all the things have been leading up to him um, that, that god's purpose was to reconcile the world to himself through the person of jesus christ and uh, this kind of goes against uh, our, our human nature, this idea of might makes right, that this one uh, humble man who would um, take the humble path of the cross, um, that, that he would be the one bringing the kingdom uh, is, is kind of contrary to kind of earthly, fleshly conceptions of, of what strength, of tr- what true strength is. Um, and so he's, he's, he shows them, he says, this mustard seed, this itty-bitty thing. Um, uh, w- when you see this man with these 12 followers of his and uh, close followers and then, you know, several hundred others, it may seem like not a big deal, like not, not a big thing. But he's saying this kingdom, this itty-bitty seed, um, when it comes to fruition, it's going to be huge. And so this is, a, this is, this is a, an illustration of that. This itty-bitty seed will become a great tree. And, and, and these mustard trees, um, you know, they can grow to be 15, 20, even in ideal uh, circumstances, even 30 feet tall. And, and, and birds of the air would, would, would nest in them. And, and that's what the kingdom is like. It, it may not seem like much right now, just kind of one uh, transient uh, rabbi uh, with his kind of band of, of, uh, of fellow travelers. I was going to say misfits, but that's not entirely appropriate. So, that, so that's the parable of, of the, the mustard seed. Um, and then he says it's, it's uh, like uh, leaven hid in three measures of flour. Three measures, I don't remember the exact uh, volume of, of what that is, but it's a lot. Um, and, and what he's saying is a, a small bit of yeast put in a lot of flour will leaven the whole batch. And this is, of course, something uh, Jews would uh, be well aware of. Um, 
Jews were all about purity um, in, in, in their practices. And in fact, uh, part of that uh, purity was uh, before the Passover, the, the, uh, you know, this, this idea of unleavened bread, they would clean all the yeast out. Um, but and to leave any bit behind uh, would, of course, leaven the, the bread that they are making when it's supposed to be unleavened. Uh, and, and so they would certainly understand this, that a small bit of where, where we're like, um, you know, I know you bake, Kirk, but many of yeah. our listeners may be like, I don't know how much yeast it's required to make uh, bread rise, um, but it's, it's not very much. Um, so uh, he kind of is in, in this rapid fire mode here with these very, very uh, short parables. And, and so the next ones are, are of the tremendous. So, so the first two parables are, are about how the kingdom may not look like much, uh, but, but when it when it comes into its fruition, and even as we see it today, um, you know, the, the the first hearers of of this um, uh, from from Matthew's lips, um, there would have been several thousand Christians. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, so Jesus taught several hundred people would have heard this. Um, and then the, the first people kind of encountering this gospel from Matthew uh, would have numbered in the thousands. And now there are billions, well, maybe not billions, but, but um, more than a billion and, and hundreds of millions more than a billion of Christians in the world today. Um, and certainly billions and billions and billions over, over the centuries and millennia. So kingdom of heaven is, is something uh, which may seem unsubstantial in earthly ways, but in fact is tremendously significant. But not only that, but it is of tremendous value uh in verses 44 and 45 uh it's it's like uh finding a treasure in the field um to the point where you do everything you can to buy this field and so this may if 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 you are a uh, very if you read these things very closely you might be like well this is immoral um but in fact the rabbis in that day taught uh the, the morality, the, the, the church's teaching, official teaching was like finders keepers, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. So like if you did find a treasure, it would be totally moral to, to purchase the field and then get, get, get the treasure. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, but this, this fine pearl, uh, I think, is even, something even more remarkable. So, of course, a, a treasure, you, you, you'd pay for a field to get a treasure that's worth much more than the field. But this pearl of great price uh, is something even even more intense because uh what what the tre- the hidden treasure is 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 that uh you are getting a great value and so i think we could talk about pascal's wager um uh this philosopher pascal who said uh you know you have everything to gain and very little to lose almost nothing to lose by um, putting your faith in jesus christ and that's like this this uh, treasure in the field is that you yeah okay you buy a field but you get a tremendous treasure but this pearl of great price um it is something so beautiful and so wonderful this is a this is somebody uh who has spent their life looking for the most beautiful and fine pearl uh and they found it and and they liquidate their wealth so they can acquire Mm. this thing um and that is the beauty of of knowing jesus and Mm. and so with that um i i've said a lot and haven't discussed the 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 net which is uh i'll let you cover that if you'd like otherwise we can come back to me i'll let you talk uh that was actually the the one parable for which i i hadn't really uh taken any notes (laughs) because i i had uh, several comments on on each of the others so 
Um, right? Again, a theme for this show, Christopher, is great content. Um, but yeah, let me, let me uh, kind of comment on an aspect of uh, the must, mustard seed um, that, that you hadn't touched on. Um, so the mustard seed, I, I think most people who've encountered this parable before, um, it's, it's often pointed out that, uh, that Jesus uh, notes that it is uh, so small. And if, if you've ever cooked with a recipe that involves mustard seed, um, you see that when you, uh, if, it, if your recipe involves for, you know, a teaspoon of mustard seeds or oftentimes chicken recipes, um, like honey, honey mustard chicken has mustard seeds that you cook with. And you can see how small they are. They're, they're, they're just tiny. Um, and yet uh, a mustard plant um, becomes a tree large enough that birds come and make, make a nest in its branches. Um, and so uh, it's, it's interesting. What is, what, what is analogous to what in this parable, right? Well, he says the kingdom of heaven is like that mustard seed. Um, and you use the term apocalypse, which you said, uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm using this wrong. It, it, it means revealing. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. So um, in, our, in our Christian worship, in the means that Jesus has given to us uh, to bind ourselves together as his body and bind ourselves to him, uh, his body, um, he's given us the sacraments, right? Um, and so when you receive in your hand um, a wafer or, or, or a bit of bread, um, that too is an apocalypse. Um, it's a tiny uh, sign um, of, and it's a tiny portion, it's a synecdoche of something much larger, right? It is the mustard seed that is, um, that is just a hint of what the larger, lovelier mm. fruit is, right? The entire tree. Yeah. And so every time we received Holy Communion, St. Augustine made this link um, to the sacrament of Holy Communion here. Um, we, it's a mustard seed that is, uh, that is being planted in our body and in our soul. And what, what the fruit of that um, is this lovely tree, which is the kingdom. Um, also, uh, let's see, what else did I have? Uh, yeast, the parable of the yeast. I was at a great conference, I think in 2013, 2014, in which a venerable Episcopal bishop from South Carolina, Fitzsimmons Allison, um, he commented on, uh, on Jesus's teachings uh, with of of yeast and leaven, and he noted one time he was uh, he was stuck in traffic because a truck had crashed, and uh, and and I forget what exactly he said was on the truck, um, but but as a result, <laughs> it had burst open, and uh, I guess there was there there was a shipment of yeast or there was yeast in water, and the the yeast and the water had mixed and it had burst open the truck and. Uh, the yeast had expanded across the road. And um, I mean, there, there can't have been that much yeast in the truck, in the semi-truck, um, but yet it created this comical stoppage of traffic um, because it had expanded. Um, and the power of planting the word of God, um, what it can do, what it can plant um, is remarkable. And every time we read that, I, I'm reminded of that story of the truck the, and the crash. And then this... Um, uh, this, uh, oh my gosh, I, the, the, the word's escaping me, dough, this dough <laughs> that had expanded, this bread dough, this massive uh, traffic stoppage that had expanded because of the bread dough. So that is such a good metaphor for um, faithful planting of, of the seed. Um, it's interesting, uh, 
lest we miss the importance of the, the parable of the pearl of great price. Um, mm -hmm. Pearls were, pearls are valuable now, right? You might buy a pearl for your wife or for your girlfriend or fiance or something. Um, and the string of pearls looks very elegant. It's very lovely. Um, I looked this up. Pearls were extraordinarily valuable in the, uh, in the ancient world because the way, uh, the way that pearls were retrieved was quite dangerous and exotic. Mm. You'd have people that were really good at holding their breath, diving down, <laughs> and getting them. Uh, there, there, there weren't oxygen tanks in the ancient world, right? So these were uh, really kind of daring young men and women uh, that would have done this, and they would have made a lot of money at this dangerous venture, and surely... Um, uh, it was difficult and dangerous to, to go that deep and to get them. And so um, very famously, uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar had given a, a gift of, and of course, now I lost it. Here we go. We got it. Uh, he had given a gift of pearls to the mother of Brutus, who had <laughs> a famous, uh, famous courtier who later became his murderer. But uh, anyway, worth... Uh, worth uh, six million dollars <laughs> a string of pearls to to brutus's mother wow. cleopatra was said to have possessed a pearl worth a hundred million the equivalent of a hundred million dollars in wow. the ancient world um so this would have been a striking parable um mm. and and shocking that jesus is saying this this is what uh what the mm. kingdom of god is uh and then and then lastly uh the parable that the uh the hidden treasure um you you rightly Kind of pointed out the way that ancient property law went, uh, the the way that it it worked. Um, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, what is the field, right? So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, right? So the treasure, the treasure is the kingdom of heaven, mm -hmm. but hidden in a field. What is the field? Um, and and it looks like uh, like both the church fathers and reformers, um, a majority of them agree that the field is holy scriptures. Uh, and so once you find this treasure, which is your salvation, um, the kingdom of God, your salvation in the kingdom of God, in the Holy Scriptures, you, nothing else is worth as much as that field. Mm. Um, and that is, uh, that, that points to how lovely Holy Scriptures are yes. to a faithful Christian, right? Um, nothing is worth as much as, as the word of God to, to a Christian. And so... At, uh, when, when you read the parable that way, I think it, it hits home with particular power. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I find myself thinking this and saying this frequently is, is that like God has spoken. Yeah. <laughs> you know, isn't that remarkable? And, and, and it's, and his word is available to us. We don't have to, uh, you know, as, as much as, uh, you know, it's funny how, um, how many people seek God's uh, revelation apart from what he's already done. And I, I mean, even Christians, like, what does God say about this? What does God want for this? What, you know, like they're looking for God to speak something very specific to them when God has already said a lot. And, and, and we should be more amazed by, by, by this book that we have. It's, it's, it's beautiful, wonderful, and it's a treasure. It truly is. Amen. Amen. Uh, any final thoughts uh, before we move on to our theology segment? Uh, well, I, I don't want to just skip the, the last parable, but just oh, to yeah, say yeah, that, 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 that it's, well, I, I just didn't know if, you, um, like I said, we can come back to me. Um, it, it's one of judgment again. Um, and and uh, we like to say that, well, it's, well, it's, well, not we like to say, but uh, people like to think of Jesus as, you know, this hippie, 
just, hey, whatever, man, I just want you to love everybody and everything. Of course, Jesus is pure love and pure compassion. Um, and part of that is calling us to his ways. Um, but we like to separate the, the Old Testament God from Jesus and say, well, he is this angry God. And of course, that's it's a heresy to say that there's a separation between the Father and the Son, or even the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Um, God was always working to reconcile the world to himself. Um, that's, what God, that's what God has been doing. Uh, but in, in kind of separating the judgment from, from Jesus, we're not being faithful to the word of God in, in which uh, much of the judgment um, comes from the very lips of Jesus, um, both here and um, in, in, in the, the other t- uh, things that we've, that w- whether it be the weeds being cast into, into fire here where we see a weeping gnashing of teeth or the, or the separation of the sheep and the goats, that um, it's not like you use the word um, uh, univocal or you said univocal. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Um, this, this, this is a word that we often uh, uh read but don't hear in, in yeah do you language. notice but, that like readers commonly mispronounce words because yeah, you read right. them without ever hearing you've them? never yeah. actually heard it or said right. it but you read it all the time right? right and you might even write it um but 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 bible is of one voice it's not like jesus says one thing and paul says another and that's right that's right. and uh so that that's all i want to say there or or as 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 I, I don't think I made this up. I picked this up somewhere and I forgot where. And so I'm sorry that I can't give credit, but I've since repeat this constantly. This is a refrain of mine. Um, we never pit scripture against scripture. Right. But, but we do use scripture to interpret scripture. So that's right. So, that's right. so yep. if, if, if one kind of seems to stand apart, you kind of hold them together and, and yeah. try to understand them uh, next to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Both things are true. Yeah. yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, um, the world. And yet, the sheep and the goats will be separated. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we kind of sit with those two things in tension. That's just like mm-hmm. the most famous example of yeah. being careful yeah. to not pit scripture against scripture. Yeah. I, I just have a final superficial comment on, okay. on the, the parable of the nets, um, which is uh, I, I just made this connection this week looking at this passage, <laughs> which is there was this old cop show in the fifties and sixties. <laughs> yeah. uh, baby boomers uh, uh, yeah. grew up with it. Dragnet. Yeah. And, uh, in, I think the, the new King James or in the King, King James. James. That's King right. Okay. <laughs> it uses the term dragnet. dragnet. Yeah. Dragnet. Yeah. And when like all I think of when I hear dragnet is, is either the TV show or um, just a reference. I think what that means is when, when um, police uh, very systematically um, kind of root things out, like close off a few blocks. And, yeah. And, so I yeah. guess it would have been a policing metaphor, right? I, 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 I think um, so. A fishing metaphor that police would use. Yeah. We're going to, yeah. <laughs> totally superficial observation. Yeah, no, it's profound. It's great that you that you bring that up because I, I almost was going to say that, that King James used dragnet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do our theology segment. segment this week i wanted to talk about the it may not be uniquely christian but it, it certainly is i think unique in uh, our culture this this idea of 
praying for our enemies, mm. um, loving our enemies, um, and also praying for them. And, and uh, I was listening to, uh, so, so this is funny, um, introducing this segment because uh, maybe I have a problem as far as listening to too many podcasts um, <laughs> because I was listening to a podcast that gave, and, and that gave me this idea. And now I'm talking about it on a podcast, but I was listening to a podcast uh, where, where um, the, the people were talking about another podcast. So we're like three degrees in An right? infinite regressive <laughs> podcasts. Yes. So these guys are talking about another podcast uh, in which um, the uh, they're talking about an NPR podcast where Dolly Parton was being interviewed and uh, on, on NPR and, and uh, they were trying to get Dolly, they're trying to get her to be political. And she, I guess, I don't know a lot about Dolly Parton. I know that she's beloved. Um, and one of the reasons she's probably beloved is, is because uh, she hasn't kind of thrown away her broad appeal by uh, yeah, that's right. By kind of um, kind of narrow partisan politics, kind of divisive, um, and, and so they tried to get her to try to kind of uh, pin her down on this or that, um, and, and eventually came around to, to Trump, and uh, she said, I, "I don't really want to talk about that," um, and the, and and they kind of pressed her on it, and, and she's like, "Listen, some of my some of the, my fans love Trump." Some of my fans hate Trump. Um, I'll say this. Uh, I pray for him. And it, again, this is this weird infinite regression, not infinite, uh, multi-step regression of a podcast talking about a podcast talking about a podcast. Um, but but uh, what these guys said is that the hosts, the NPR hosts were a, a bit shocked and taken aback that she would pray for uh, President Trump, who, um, of course, for them would be would be an enemy, an ideological, a spiritual enemy, um, just someone across the aisle um, that you wouldn't pray for. And, and so I, I just wanted to bring up this uh, theological um, idea of, of, and I guess this is part of Christian charity, uh, which is a broad thing uh, of forgiveness. You know, we talked about the Christian idea of forgiveness, pushing up against society's push for um for vengeance and and to really and for punishment and uh the of course the best uh, biblical text on this comes from the sermon on the mount from this book of matthew that we're in right now at the end of chapter so the sermon on the mount is several chapters it starts in chapter five with the beatitudes um and he moves on to, to saying you are the salt of the earth um talks about anger lust divorce divorce oaths retaliation and it ends with um, his admonition to love your enemies. So this starts at verse 43 of chapter five in the book of Matthew. Jesus said, you have heard it said, I'm sorry, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on, on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, So uh, I, I raised this um, as, as uh, 
as uniquely Christian, this, this idea uh, as Jesus is, is revealing his kingdom, uh, this is the nature of, of living in the kingdom. And uh, it's interesting, what book that I'm reading uh, right, right now is, is a book that uh, one kind of group of men are, are gathering from church to read. Um, and it's, it's, it's centered around um, this book of Matthew, uh, essentially the Sermon on the Mount, uh, teaching on, on the kingdom. And part of the book is, is, is it, it hopes for transformation. And so it not only does the teaching, but it has, uh, it has uh, at the end of every chapter is like homework. It's, there's like a, there is a kind of a spiritual practice to put the, uh, to put the kind of, to take a, a theoretical thing and, and, and make it concrete. And so when I talked about this, um, it said, well, every day this week, like find someone who's your enemy. So maybe you don't have any enemies, but someone who's, who you're frustrated with and pray for them every day this week by name. And that will change your heart. Um, and, and uh, Jesus, in his logic, he points out, he says, I mean, if you are only good to those who are good to you, how would that make you special? Everybody's like that. And he's saying to, to be a distinct people, um, I want you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Uh, and uh, I'm going to let you talk now because I, I, I have a follow-up, uh, but I don't want, I want you to be able to comment on this right now. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is, uh, to, to me, uh, so hard for the human heart because it's the starkest, one of the starkest examples of how Jesus' moral vision is an inversion. It's a moral inversion mm-hmm. of our natural moral compass. Mm-hmm. Um, so our natural moral compass is, uh, is victory. Victory is up. Um, you... Uh, the human, uh, the human condition is one giant game of king of the mountain, right? King of the hill. Uh, that game that we all played as children where there was a mountain of snow or a dirt pile <laughs> or whatever. And you try to climb to the top. And, you try, and in doing so, you have to knock others down, right? And Jesus teaches something different, which is the way up is down, right? Mm-hmm. So victory, um, the world teaches victory is up. You climb the mountain. You climb the pile of skulls. And Jesus says, no, victory is down. Um, those people who pushed you down, you don't push them back down so you can get up. You pray for them. And if they, if they take your coat, you give them another. Um, if they punch you, you, you know, we've, it's so, his, his response is you turn the other cheek. It's so, um, that phrase is so abused that it's lost mm-hmm. its ability to shock. But I just want, like, we need to remember how shocking that is, right? Mm-hmm. Someone punches you in the face, you say, and punch me in the gut too, right? So this idea that we, um, that we love our enemies um, and, and, and don't go into a defensive crouch, but forever keep our arms extended in love. And that includes, of course, the most powerful expression of love, which is prayer. And, uh, and the, one of the things that we're called to do um, in uh, the Episcopal Church and, all, and uh, the ACNA and all Anglican church bodies, all prayer books yeah. have in the prayers of the people in the prayer section in North America in the United States, we pray for a president. Um, and this was uh, interesting that, that president, governor, and mayor. Yep. So I, yeah. yes. And, and all who hold authority. Yeah. So, so here's, here's 
But usually uh, by name, we say yep. our president, so, Donald, yep. our governor, Christie. Yeah. Yeah. We pray that you will lead the nations of the world in the way of righteousness and so guide and direct their leaders, especially Donald, our president, and uh, Tom, our governor, <laughs> that you may enjoy the blessings of freedom and peace. Grant that our leaders may impartially administer justice, uphold integrity and truth, restrain wickedness and vice, and protect true religion and virtue. Mm. Mm. And that is, that is so right and proper. And um, there have been times, I won't say when, <laughs> when I've gritted my teeth praying that prayer, and that is good for my heart. Mm-hmm. And there have been times when the presidents have been different, when it's come more naturally. Um, and that the, the name that we pray for shouldn't change that prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that extends beyond political leaders, right? Um, that extends for people that just are our enemies, um, bosses, that, bad bosses, um, bad coworkers, bad neighbors, um, um, all that stuff. And, and so it's both true because our Lord commands it, because it's his moral universe and his moral economy. And we live in his world, not he and ours. Um, but it's also true, as you said, because it shapes our hearts in proper mm-hmm. ways, as you discussed mm-hmm. with your men's group. Um, it, crea- mm-hmm. it creates reliable grooves of piety and thinking in our souls and in our hearts that, that are important. Um, so that our moral posture towards others is not of dominance, um, um, but of servitude, right? Our, uh, the, the, the word that spoke all things into be- being came to serve not to be served. Um, so now that I've pontificated yeah. and sermonized, do you remember what you were, your, your other thought? No, I, I wanted to, yeah, I, I remembered it, but like, um, I, I mean, we've, you and I, we've been in a rut before. We've been so kind of stuck. Uh, and I'm sure every, every listener, like we've been so kind of close that we don't have the perspective um, to back off and, and see things uh, for what they are. And, and we want to be people who uh, aren't uh, kind of immovable or, or people who, who are able to take in new facts and new data and, and change our point of view um, mm. as, as, as new things are revealed or as, um, you know, I guess what I'm saying is um, there are times, uh, so you mentioned praying for a boss um, it'd be easy to pray for your boss to make for them to change so that everything would be good for you. Um, but, but yeah. um, that's not what Jesus wants. Um, in fact, what he wants um, is for us to pray for their, for their good period, but also as it shapes us, as we pray for our, for, for, for our enemies, for our bosses, for those we have conflict with, um, we do it in humility that it's possible that we are wrong. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes in praying for them, um, it, it allows us to back off and have the clarity to see where we have made mistakes. And, and, and sometimes that's where reconciliation happens is not necessarily where the other person has to do all the changing, but we meet somewhere in between. And, um, and in, in Christ, we should have that humility. Um, and and I, I certainly think that praying for others helps us get there to be, to be peacemakers. Yeah, so let me introduce a concept that that many of our listeners might have heard of, and some haven't, which is Manichaeanism. So there was a kind of an, an ancient in the ancient world, uh, uh, in the time of the apostles and the early church fathers. There's this cult, um, and Saint Augustine was actually a Manichaean before he became a Christian. 
uh, and, it, and it, it divides the world into the good and the evil, and it's eternally split in half. And uh, so there's, there's the good half and the bad half, and not to get too deep into Manichae uh, and his teachings, uh, but, but they're, they're kind of an eternal tension. And, uh, and we have, um, I think in, in contemporary political life, we have Manichaean intuitions. Uh, and, and we see, see things as a 50-50 struggle politically. And, uh, and we, need to, we need the other half to lose so that uh, righteousness can win. And a couple of things, like that's, that's A, not a Christian <laughs> conception of the world. Um, Manichae was not Christian, and St. Augustine eventually converted to Christianity. And so the moral vision is just different. Um, but, but also it distorts our souls um, when, we, when we hate our political enemy mm. or uh, we, we hope for total victory of our political side. Uh, and that's, that was what was so helpfully revealing about Dolly Parton's interview is she refused to cave to that moral vision mm -hmm. um, that the enemy was evil, uh, that the political enemy was evil and had to be defeated. Um, and you can't pray for them. You can't identify that with them. Um, you, you can't appeal to all Americans. Um, and she very ironically, very peacefully sidestepped all of that. And she said, um, mm -hmm. I think when she was forced finally near the end, she said, um, well, well, yeah, I have opinions. Of course I do. But I, I, just, I, I just don't talk about them. Like, I'm, I'm here to sing songs and, and make boob jokes <laughs> or something like that. And, well, and, uh, <laughs> and, and be incredibly charitable. Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> at least in South Dakota, every single child <laughs> born in South Dakota for years gets free books mailed to them every month um, from, from her charity. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like she supports literacy, among other things. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we, I, I think the Manichaean moral vision is is something that we get sucked into. Uh, uh, poll after poll after poll after poll um, uh, says that people um, like their neighbor of the opposite party, mm -hmm. but if they don't see a face, mm -hmm. um, they just assume that that person is, uh, is repugnant morally, has a, has a skewed moral vision, and, the, and more, even more importantly, the skews so strongly assumes that that person hates them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and and these things just aren't true, right? And Dolly Parton's an example of that, right? Like at a Dolly Parton conf, uh, right uh, concert, yeah. you have you know you know overweight bubba's wearing mega hats, and you have uh, hipster lesbian mothers, and they're all together singing her songs, and mm -hmm. um, and and the divisions kind of dissolve. So, yeah. So do, do you remember uh, when? During the Obama presidency, um, a black Harvard or Yale professor was arrested. Um, yeah, Skip Gates for for trying yeah. to get into his own home. Yeah, he's and an interesting so, guy. He does the uh, genetic stuff on PBS. Yeah. Okay, but um, do, do you remember kind of how this was? How uh, Obama tried to resolve this? The beer summit. The beer summit. <laughs> yep. So he invited the arresting cop and 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 the the guy who was a victim of kind of racial profiling and kind of unfair. Um, police policing and yeah. invited them to the white house for a beer summit. And I, I think we should have more beer summits like in your driveway, yeah. have a socially distanced, uh, love your neighbors, pray for them. Uh, don't talk politics. There's so many more interesting things yeah. <laughs> in the world. Amen. Uh, and, and, I, and I guess I should note, um, 
interesting in, in uh, just how in the last few years, everybody, you know, everybody has become interested in politics. You, you and I uh, are, are very similar in that we studied uh, political science in, in college mm. and, and we're very interested, very engaged. Uh, and that seems like a whole different life to both of us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because now it's just like, uh, we're interested, we're engaged, but it's not, it's not at the forefront. But it seems like everyone else has gotten, int- like they've found out about politics and suddenly it's their thing. And um, so politics have, has encompassed everything from country music, uh, pop culture. Um, and it's not just the legislature. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the Congress. It's, it's entered the courts. And so Major League pro- Baseball. I watched the okay. uh, last but, but night. It, yeah. Yeah, but but yeah. A, a progressive hero um, is, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You can get tattoos, T-shirts. Uh, do you know uh, who her best friend was on the court? Um, Antonin Scalia. The late Antonin Scalia, who was- um, And do you know why? A, a, like, honestly, an enemy of the progressive movement. Yeah. But, but why, Kirk? Why were they best friends? Why were they like, genuinely, they loved each other. They, they were very close. Their, their favorite thing in the world for both of them was opera. Hmm. And so something outside the political realm and some outside the judicial realm, which has been politicized since uh, Judge Bork and Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas in the 80s and 90s. And um, you know what's better than politics? Opera. Opera. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, you know, whatever it is that you can talk about with your friend other than politics, you'll find it much easier to pray for them, I think. Hmm. And uh, Scalia and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were a, were a, a, a great example of that. Ab- absolutely, man. Yep. Oh, so um, this is what uh, I didn't want to raise er- earlier because it wasn't quite related. It's kind of related in that it's like a value, uh, but we discussed forgiveness recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just in the last couple of d- days, uh, we, we watched an episode of The Crown um, where Queen Elizabeth uh, was, was uh, it's interesting, Billy Graham comes to England uh, yes. And uh, she's working through um, what it means or whether she wants to forgive um, her uncle, the, uh, the, the, the king who um, gave, put aside the crown um, uh, in favor of marrying a divorced woman. Um, and she even asked Billy Graham his, his view on the matter of, of what it means uh, or, or the Christian's duty to forgive. And... Uh, as, as I brought up the idea of Christian forgiveness, but also said that, like, there's a cost to these things. Like, uh, if you sin and, and you're in the public eye, um, that may mean you're no longer governor or president or senator. Um, but there may be a cost to that. But um, forgiveness does mean some matter of, of reconciliation. Uh, and and, and I, as I watched this, uh, I, I think it brought more nuance to the discussion in, in this way, Kirk in that um, for Elizabeth to forgive him doesn't mean she needs to allow a guy who um, she just learned (laughs) visited Hitler and was actively working quote unquote for peace um, to essentially uh, peace for him meant uh, uh, kind of a Neville Chamberlain-esque giving over of Europe to the Nazis. That's what peace meant for, right. for her uncle. Um, right. Forgiveness doesn't mean letting him back into uh, a job with the government as ambassador, mm-hmm. this or that. You can forgive someone without complete restoration of um, 
like he, he is shown in his care to be to, to really lack character and, and it's interesting in the episode you kind of hear um in his what i assume is his private diary um he, he re- derisively refers to elizabeth who was wise beyond her years right uh, he refers to her as shirley temple yeah. um and, and so he's trying to worm his way back in and she's like what does forgiveness mean does forgiveness mean um that that uh that i uh, put him back in a position of authority when uh, essentially he he uh he is still the same poor uh person of poor character who um who would throw his country aside for for convenience yeah well i think this, that's a direct analog to the parable of the unforgiving servant right forgiveness mm. sometimes and this is a mystery that only God knows, dramatically changes a human soul. Mm -hmm. Being forgiven can unlock new life in you. And then some people are untouched by having been forgiven. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, so, so then, I mean, forgiveness doesn't cancel out justice but we are nevertheless always called to be forgiven. So in his case, um, Elizabeth needs to make sure that justice happens, right? That he is not allowed to ever have his hand on the levers of any power ever again, because his moral vision was not corrected by mm-hmm. forgiveness. Um, but yet, yet um, justice is very light, right? He has a lovely chateau in the French right, countryside. Right, right. He, he is still, <laughs> like, has, has a very generous pension from the government. That's right. Yeah, he's not living in poverty. Yeah. yeah, and he ne- she never slandered him publicly. Right. She just made sure that he could do no more damage. Yeah. Yeah, and so we see the subtlety and Christian um, sense of her, uh, her moral. Um, she has great moral deftness mm. in how she deals with the situation, and mm-hmm. and certainly is able to forgive despite her speaking quite slanderously of him in private. Uh, him speaking quite yes, slanderously yes, of her privately. Yes. That's yes. Right. Yep. Yes. We. Uh, this has been a great segment. We've gone a bit long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shall we move to uh, to our uh, our culture segment? Yes. Let's do it. Kirk. Kirk. Yes, Christopher. I am very excited about this segment. Uh, And I suggested it to you maybe six, eight weeks ago. I wish I could remember the song, but uh, I I love listening to the music that you insert between segments. And uh, the music that you had inserted um, was a beautiful fugue. And if you are not someone who uh, has taken an interest in music, uh, my hope is that this segment will... uh, Pizza... Or salad. <laughs> okay. You go Which ahead. One, uh, can you pause it? I'm trying. I'm trying well, desperately. It's not this. This is high quality content. All right, go ahead. Okay. So, uh, so my hope uh, is is that uh, by listening to this segment, Kirk is gonna Kirk uh, has a great musical background and is gonna discuss exactly what a fugue is. Is gonna give you several examples. And the next time you hear a fugue in music. Um, I hope that uh, you appreciate it all the more. And and Kirk, the the reason you were hearing an advertisement about pizza in the background is because he is using YouTube and he had queued up the segments. Um, but uh, kind of, uh, I think Kirk, they went to sleep. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Hey, listener, for, forgive us. I'll, I'll try to edit this as as well as I can. But if if uh, this, this is this is 
a slight step forward uh, technologically in what we're trying to do with this show than, we, than we've ever done. So um, bear, bear with us and be forgiving as we have been discussing the last several episodes. So uh, Christopher, I'll, t- I'll tell you, the musical segment that you heard was um, from uh, Orlando Gibbons, one of my favorite late Renaissance English composers. He was the court composer at Lambeth Palace for Archbishop William Laud. Uh, um, late under the, uh, uh, did Laud, was Laud under uh, James I or was he entirely, I think he was, he was appointed by, um, by Charles I. So we're talking the 16 teens, 1620s, 1630s. Um, Archbishop Laud said uh, he was the best composer he knew. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll stop talking about Orlando Gibbons because I want to get on to... Uh, He's great, though. <laughs> we love Orlando Gibbons. And, and what, was, it, it, what was the piece? It was what? the Ascension Anthem, Oh, Clap Your Hands. Okay. Um, yes. From, yes. from, the, uh, from the, the very appropriate psalm, um, God Has Gone Up With a Shout, mm. uh, uh, which is, oh my gosh, that does so prefigure the Ascension. Um, mm. Anyhow, uh, that, that actually wasn't a fugue, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Um, but that was a classic Renaissance polyphony. So let's back up just a moment. Uh, there are several components to music, uh, and you, you probably know some of them. Um, one is melody. Uh, uh, melody is the most basic building block of all music. Uh, it is what we find pleasant. Um, melodies are often fun for their, uh, for their simplicity, for their elegance. Melodies use things like repetition, um, intervals, um, so you have short intervals, uh, a second, a third, a fourth, or you have jumps and a mixture of those things. Um, there's rhythm as well. So certain notes last um, a short period of time or a long period of time. Then you have harmony. Um, and that's when you have, uh, you have notes that are played together pleasantly. You have dissonance. So harmony and dissonance work together um, to kind of add spice. Uh, and then, uh, and, and most songs that you and I sing, folk songs, pop songs, use a mixture of melody, harmony, dissonance, and rhythm to um, be interesting to our ear. Uh, but, but there is something else um, which is used more often in art music, classical music, or church music, and this is counterpoint. Um, so when I play Renaissance uh, music, um, oftentimes they'll have multiple lines doing different things. Uh, and that's called polyphony, polyphony, many voices. Uh, so uh, you'll have the, the, the sopranos singing one thing, and the altos singing another thing, and the tenors sometimes singing a third thing. Um, and that's, that's polyphony. So that Orlando Gibbons piece was a classic example of Renaissance polyphony. And the contrast between melody and polyphony is fun to our ear. It's a, it's a special spice. It's mustard on the hot dog. It makes it interesting. So anytime you hear fun Renaissance music, for example, I've played the, uh, the Renaissance anthem before, If Ye Love Me by Thomas Tallis, which begins in straight harmony. All four voices, uh, um, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, are singing the same thing. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father send you another comforter. Um, and, and suddenly halfway through the piece the four parts split and you have a counterpoint and that's fun because the four parts are doing different things okay so all that is 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 a bunch of prelude uh excessively lengthy prelude to talk about fugue all right what is fugue fugue is uh, an extension 
of counterpoint. Um, fugue becomes quite popular uh, in the Baroque era. Um, it, it, it had existed in Renaissance music under in the court of Queen Elizabeth and King James and Charles, but it really takes off. And the man that makes fugue the gold standard for composers is Bach. And so we're going to start with a fugue of Bach. And here's what fugues are. All right, fugues are, um, let me pull up the definition that I had written down here. Um, fugue begins with a subject. So you have a melody and it's played by one voice. Um, and then a second, second voice comes in, but it introduces that same subject in a new key. So it's modulating. So for example, um, one voice would uh, um, play the subject or sing the subject in C. And oftentimes it's a fourth up. So the second subject will come in an F. So what makes it fun to your ear as well is there's a sense of slipperiness. The key is constantly changing. Um, the music is modulating from C to F to B flat to E flat. And so there's a sense of strain from home and you feel that tether and you wanna come home. And the climax of the fugue then is when the four, three or four voices come back together and they meet back at home. So you're back in the key of C or whatever, whatever it is. Um, also, a fugue, um, a composer will flex their muscles and show off by, uh, by changing the subject. Um, so one way they can change the subject is by doubling the rhythmic value of each note. That's called augmentation. So that means that the subject will be stretched out and slowed down. Or conversely, you could cut that um, note value in half in smaller factions, that's called diminution. And another uh, approach is flipping the melody upside down. That's called melodic inversion, um, in which the intervals of the subject are re exactly reversed. And we're gonna hear inversion by my favorite composer, Bruckner. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of throat clearing and I hope I haven't, haven't lost you. Let's start with um, Bach. Um, we're going to start with Bach's, uh, this is his little fugue in G minor. We're going to play uh, just a minute of, it, minute of it. So here's what I want you to listen for. You'll hear the theme by one voice in G minor, one voice on the organ. Then you're going to hear the subject introduced by a second voice, um, but it's in a new key. So it's modulated. And then you'll hear the third voice. And we'll listen to them play a little bit. We won't listen to the whole thing. Um, Let's back up to the beginning. Here we are. First subject. You're going to hear the second subject here, but in a new key. Get ready for the third, the third voice. Fourth voice in the pedal. Uh, 
All right, so that's just a minute there. And you can hear that Box introduced four different voices with the same subject. And uh, each time he's introduced them, he's modulated to a new key. Um, there will be a development section, and then it all comes and lands back home in G minor at the end with all four voices coming together. Um, uh, let's hear what this sounds like in an orchestra. Um, this is Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, in which Benjamin Britten so effectively introduces all the sections of the orchestra, woodwinds, brass, strings, and percussion. Um, and he uses a theme by Henry Purcell, um, who, is a, uh, who is a Baroque English composer, also of church music. Um, and at the very end, he, he, uh, he wraps it all together with this thrilling fugue. Um, and so you hear, let's, uh, let's hear these voices all introduced here. All right, so we'll hear, we'll start with the woodwinds. So we've had flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and added complexity, which is fun to the ear with each new voice. Strings. Notice modulating each time, so we're straying from home. Got cello, double bass. A second subject in the woodlands, so now we got a double theme, two different subjects. Harp, how fun is that? I'm sorry, I hadn't intended to play that whole segment, but it's so good. 
It's so, so good. Christopher, and you and I were talking pre-show about how much we love this because, of course, this is instrumental in a recent Wes Anderson movie that we discussed. Um, uh, what movie? What movie was this? Uh, Moonrise King? Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. That's right. That last this theme is... that the winds came in with. Yeah. Yes. Uh, was was, um, was featured prominently in in uh, Moonrise Kingdom. So I realize we're going long. So I'm going to wrap up here with two brief segments. My favorite composer of all time, Anton Bruckner, a 19th century romantic romantic German composer, a deep uh, a deep uh, pious Christian, and wrote a lot of great church music as well as nine monumental symphonies. Um, and here's the end of his, oh no, this went to sleep, so it might come, uh, I, I'll wake up with an ad here. Um, but here's the, the end of his setting of Psalm 150, and it's in German, listener, so please, you, I know you're maybe uh, anticipating English, it's in German. Um, but it's a fugal theme, and I'm not going to play the whole thing, uh, but I want you to notice he uses inversion. So he introduces the theme, he introduces it in three different voices, and then he flips it upside down just to flex his muscles and show off a little bit. And it's, um, he does that a lot when he introduces fugal material in his symphonies as well. Here, let's do this. Here's an ad, so let's get past the ad. Good grammar and spelling are important, but if you want to write essays that inspire, messages that... All right, here we go. All right, the bases. Tenors. Altos, third voice. Such a Brooklynian subject too. Now we'll watch him invert it. He's gonna flip it upside down. <laughs> Show off, right? It's extraordinary. stop there and we'll end with a special listener request which was from Handel's Messiah his yoke is easy and his burden light and Christopher we just uh covered this scripture passage didn't we we did yeah yeah so let's listen to this um this is introduced by the Sopranos we're gonna hear the tenors Extraordinarily difficult to sing. Alto. Bases. And the mark of um, a talented composer is to write a fugue without it feeling like homework or feeling like hard work. Um, to write a fugue in which you almost aren't even aware that you're hearing uh, a fugue. And that, I think, is an example of, of that right there, right? With his yoke is easy, it's fun, you hear the melody, and you don't hear gears grinding and steam. <laughs> so that is um, the brief introduction of a fugue. I get to wear my church music hat. And uh, listener, I'm, I'm, 
I, I hope I didn't lose you. I hope it was a little educational. And I'm sorry if we were, went long. Um, but I love, uh, love fugues, and I love good, good music and good church music. And so I hope that you did too. And of course, I'll share links to all of that stuff in the show notes. Christopher, shall we close in prayer? Let's do so. Kirk, that was great. Thanks. Absolutely. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works. Give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week.